130 ish. Yes. Yeah. At an appropriate point, remind me if I'm deep in the flow. <laughs> Let me pass around dessert. Here are some uh, caramel shortcake bites. The English delicacy. Do pass them around and eat them. There will be after eight mints with the cho- with the coffee later. Ah, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if you've seen this. This is a well-known English delicacy of a sort of mint-flavoured fondant centre with dark chocolate around it. Goes very well with coffee. I think we need uh, our energy boosting <laughs> this afternoon. Although this is this is not as difficult as the logic stuff got towards the end. Uh, I hope you f- you followed it from the easy beginnings uh, through a fair way at least. Um, but here, uh, most of this comes with pretty interesting pictures. Uh, so a lot of information, but it's not uh, terribly complicated stuff. It's just fascinating stuff. So uh, archaeological evidence for Old Testament history. Let us remind ourselves, first of all, of a little bit of biblical geography and movements through time. So here we have the Mediterranean world and Israel uh, right here. So we have the going from Israel into Egypt during the time of famine and Joseph, family of Joseph and his technicolor dream coat and all that going into, into there. And then in the Exodus, they beca- the family became slaves and grew in numbers and so on. We were slaves in Egypt and then in the Exodus they come out wandering in the wilderness through some route or other and eventually come back into Israel in the conquest period of, of uh, Joshua and so on. And then we go into the area of judges and then the kings and the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split eventually. You get the, uh, the Babylonian, Assyrian kind of empires coming in and conquering Israel on their way to fighting with Egypt. You notice Israel is kind of slap bang in between the, the empires of, of, of Egypt in Africa the Mesopotamian, sort of Assyrian, Babylonian empires, and then later on, of course, in New Testament times, you get the, the Italian, the Roman uh, uh, Empire coming in here uh, as well, and the Gospel going from Israel out to there. But we're focusing on the Old Testament history, so we'll look at this kind of uh, into, uh, from the time of uh, Abraham, through the Exodus, uh, through the, the conquest, and uh, splitting of the kingdoms and the Assyrians and the Babylonians uh, conquering Israel and the, uh, the exile uh, period with like, um, folks like Daniel, uh, for example. That's where we're kind of going, situating ourselves geographically. And we'll keep coming back to this Old Testament timeline and I'll pinpoint where we are and certain people that are getting mentioned as we sort of work our way through this timeline. Our Archaeology is the systematic study of the material remains of past human behaviour. Uh, and sometimes that overlaps a bit with text because we dig up things that have text on them, um, inscriptions and so on, but uh, some of that we would tend more to think about in terms of textual studies of manuscripts and papyri and so on, but sometimes you, of course, get, you know, carved inscriptions in statuary and, and, and notices and so on. So sometimes we do get some text uh, to look at that we'll consider under the archaeological heading. The systematic study of the material remains of past human behaviour. And, of course, not everything from the past survives into the present to be discovered 
and not everything that has survived from the past into the present has been discovered. So we have a very small selection of things from the past to look at, a small window to look through, and the the, the further ago we're trying to look at, the more time there has been for things to be destroyed and lost and built over uh, and so on, so that we, we don't discover it because people are living on top of it and don't want their house digging up and so on, uh, the less we tend to find the further back in history you go, the, 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 the thinner the results that we can look at, and that is not at all surprising. We have a very limited access to the past through the, the known chain of its effects, whether we're looking at history or archaeology. And let me uh, give uh, this illustration of, of 35, only 35 out of 142 books of Roman history written by the Roman historian Livy have survived until today. They do that in about 20 different manuscripts, the oldest of which uh, is from the 4th century AD. Now, he was writing uh, around sort of uh, the 60s BC to the first couple of decades AD. And the earliest manuscript we have is from the 4th century AD. <laughs> and we only have about 20 manuscripts to help us reconstruct what he originally wrote. And as you can see from some of the charts in my book, uh, Jesus there, if you have a look, um, the manuscript evidence we have for the, the New Testament is far, far in excess of uh, most things that we have from the ancient world. But you see how little has survived. Uh, only four and a half of Tacitus' 14 books of Roman history have survived, are known today. We know he wrote 14, we've only got four and a half books. So... We are just thankful that we have access to the things that we do. We shouldn't really be surprised when there's a lack of evidence for things. And you'll often find in this historical and archaeological area, sceptical arguments often kind of take the form of there's a lack of evidence for X, therefore it's unreasonable to believe X. We should be sceptical about X. Uh, and that's a sort of argument from ignorance, argument from a lack of evidence. But those kind of arguments only, only work um, if we should expect that we have evidence of X. Then its non-existence of that evidence would be some reason for, for scepticism. But you have to ask, you know, should, why would we expect to have evidence of X? So uh, atheist Victor Stenger puts it this way. He says, an absence of evidence, a lack of evidence for something, is evidence of absence, is a reason for scepticism, only when the evidence should be there and isn't. So if you claim there's an elephant in the dining room, and I go and I look in the dining room and I don't see an elephant, then that absence of evidence, that is a pretty good reason for me concluding that there is no evidence, that there is no elephant in the dining room. Because if there were an elephant in the dining room, I would expect to notice it. <laughs> but if you, if you claim um, there are no microbes, no bacteria, in the dining room, and I go and I look, 
and I say, well, I don't see any. Yeah, I don't see any. Is that a good reason for me to think, yeah, there are no bacteria? Or, yes, you know, whichever way you put it. But, well, no, because I, I wouldn't expect to be able to see them. I wouldn't expect to have that evidence unless I were, you know, I had a microscope to hand or, or something. So we have to ask on, on these kind of absence of evidence arguments, what's the context? Would we expect to have this evidence? And actually when we're dealing with ancient history, you know, it's kind of saying, oh, you need to have extra biblical archaeological evidence for something uh, in order to believe it, and, and an absence of evidence for the existence of David or whatever, that is a good reason to actually think the Bible's probably wrong when it says there was... David, well, that, that's not a good argument, basically. So that's useful to bear in mind. So let's, let's look at, at just one example, uh, looking at archaeology and uh, another uh, sacred text, look at the Book of Mormon. So when we compare the Book of Mormon with archaeology, look at the American archaeology in the Book of Mormon, we find a pervasive lack of expected evidence. So Dr. David Johnson, who note is a professor of anthropology at Brigham Young University, a Mormon university in America, says there is no archaeological proof of the Book of Mormon. There is absolutely no archaeological evidence that you can tie directly to events that took place in the Book of Mormon. But many of those events in the Book of Mormon are such that given what we know about American archaeology of the period that's supposed to be being talked about, actually we would expect that we would have some of that evidence. So Mormon uh, 6, 10 to 15 claims that hundreds of thousands of people were killed on or near the hill Cumorah during a particular battle that's recounted. Uh, Mormon 6.15, their flesh and bones and blood lay upon the faith of the earth, being left by the hands of those who slew them to moulder upon the land, to crumble and to return to their mother earth. And so a huge battle with loads of people killed. We would expect, archaeologically speaking, and it's given us the location, you know, we would expect to find some artefacts. Uh, for example, thousands of bullets are found at the site of the much smaller American Civil War Battle of Gettysburg. Now that happened more recently, but still, nothing has been, been found at Hill uh, Cumorah. Uh, this sort of absence of evidence is the sort of absence of evidence that does, I think, constitute evidence of absence. But uh, I don't think we get that kind of result when we're looking at, at biblical archaeology. So there's these kind of um, schools and a debate. Uh, people will talk in biblical Near Eastern archaeology about um, different schools of the minimalist school and the so-called maximalist school. Uh, which Michael Heiser describes like this. This is for those unfamiliar with the minimalist versus maximalist debate over biblical archaeology. The former, so minimalist, basically believed that the Old Testament has little or no historical value. And it was entirely written during or after the exile in Babylon. Uh, it's basically sort of made up folklore to make themselves feel good about the captivity, etc., etc., that I mentioned earlier. Maximalists, on the other hand, disagree with the minimalists, but on what I'd call a continuum of optim optimism, a spectrum. 
uh, about the biblical text as a historical source where it's talking about historical matters. And of course there are even debates about when it is talking about historical matters or not, and so on. So uh, Dr. Israel Finkelstein is a famous minimalist, so he expresses his position like this. He says, the world in which the Bible was created was not uh, a mythic realm of great cities and saintly heroes, but a tiny down-to-earth kingdom. The historical saga contained in the Bible from Abraham's encounter with God and his journey to Cana to Moses's deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage to the rise and fall of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah was not a miraculous revelation but a brilliant product of human imagination. Okay, basically it's all made up. You know, yeah, there was a tiny little, you know, group of people in ancient Israel who were the Israelites and they made up a bunch of stories about their history and we call that the Bible. On the other hand, you have a Christian scholar like uh, Dr. Paul Copan here saying things like this. Uh, the once doubted historical claims of the Old Testament, we're thinking back to the sort of 19th century German liberal school of thinking, uh, whether the, the looking at the cost of slaves in the ancient Near East or camels on livestock lists during the time of Abraham, uh, the kingship of David, the mines of Solomon, the metallurgy of the Philistines, or the very existence of the Hittites, uh, turn out to be anchored in ancient Near East history. And very often, uh, of course, archaeology can't prove very often that the stories in the Bible happen as the Bible recounts them. But what it can very often do is show that the, the world that the Bible is talking about is the, the, the world of the ancient Near East at the time that those stories are set. Uh, and that the things that are mentioned, often sort of offhand things like how much it cost to buy a slave or that Abraham had camels or, and that skeptics sometimes have said, you know, the Bible's wrong about that. Uh, camels weren't domesticated until much later. The Bible's wrong. It shows it's uh, just made up. Um, actually, uh, no, the Bible's right about those things. And the more we discover, the more we find out that it is right about those little details. And how would someone writing in the Babylonian exile period know accurately about the price of slaves in the time of Abraham? You can't just go and look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, uh, historical research kind of a much harder and much less done and you know archaeology wasn't a subject back then. <laughs> archaeology is only a hundred and something you know uh, years old as a subject and so on. So uh, Lydia McGrew uh, in her book Hidden in Plain View, which is actually about the Gospels, but she puts this argument with a nice illustration that we will apply to what we do today. Uh, she, she gives this example. If, if you sample a loaf of bread on both ends and at several points in the middle and you find it's, it's good, it would, be, it would be cavailing, it would be being ultra-sceptical to say that perhaps just the parts you haven't tasted happen to be the mouldy ones. Yeah. So in other words, if we try and put this kind of into a syllogism, we could say, um, if there are lots of occasions where we can, using archaeology, prove that the Bible's right about things, where we can test it, if we can show on lots of occasions that the Bible gets things right, that ought to increase our confidence 
that the Bible is right, even in those things that we can't indirectly uh, you know, test with external evidence. That's premise one. There are lots and lots of occasions where we can show that the Bible is right about these kind of details from external archaeological evidence, for example. Conclusion, therefore, our trust in what the Bible says, even in cases where we haven't got external evidence, should be increased. Okay, see, that follows. And that, that kind of argument would, of course, apply to studying any ancient text. <coughs> One note of caution before we launch into the examples. Um, Professor John Morrison, uh, archaeological evidence is scattered, it's random, what survives and what we discover is kind of random, uh, and incomplete we get an incomplete picture of the past. Of course we do. Just as the Bible's record is selective, uh, ancient, it might use ancient uh, genres, ancient ways of expressing things, and so on, uh, and theologically orientated. So any attempt to relate these two sets of information together is fraught with challenges. Um, this is not always straightforward. Uh, and particularly, archaeologists bring different worldviews to their interpretation of the data. So, of course, an archaeologist who is minded to think that miracles are not possible is going to think that the story of the Exodus couldn't have happened in the way that the Bible describes it. And they're going to look for an alternative historical picture of, well, what actually did happen? Were there you know, maybe Israelite slaves in Egypt who left and, and founded a new sort of society in Israel. But if there was, how did they leave? What were the historical circumstances under which that was possible? Um, it certainly didn't happen by miraculous parting of the Red Sea and etc., uh, etc. Et yeah. Uh, so, what you, uh, what kind of explanations you'll allow onto the onto the discussion? onto the table of discussion can be affected by your philosophical worldview. Uh, philosophy affects interpretation of data. It's, it's not just that you, well, you dig up an artifact and then everybody suddenly agrees, ah, yes, there we go, the Bible's right. <laughs> or, oh yeah, there you go, the Bible's wrong. Because you have to interpret that artifact. Uh, you have to interpret the Bible. You have to have a philosophy about how you relate these two bunches of information together, and so on. So it's not always straightforward. Let us start uh, in the patriarchal period of the Old Testament uh, with Abraham. Unsurprisingly, I do not have any archaeology that directly relates to Abraham. This is like 1,900 years BC. So this is like nearly 4,000 years ago. Um, not very much has survived from back then, but some things do, even some things older, and you will see this in real life later today, this statue from Ur, Abraham of Ur, uh, the so-called ram in a thicket. It's not a ram, um, but the, the guy who first dug it up called it a ram. It uh, dates to about 2600 BC from the Royal Cemetery at Ur. There was a civilization of Ur, a statuette of a, a marker horse, a, a large species of wild goat, 
in fact, perched against a bush looking for food. So this is not uh, a statue of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the ram caught in a thicket when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and <laughs> like someone's made a statue of the, to commit, no. Uh, but this is the kind of uh, art of the period. This is a uh, agricultural kind of, there were animals and there were, there were thickets and people made art of them and it's just astonishing to see something so beautiful and vibrant from like four and a half thousand years ago. Uh, and there's a picture of some of the remains of, of the city of Ur. The Nuzi tablets, excavations east of the Tigris River, turned up about 20,000 baked clay cuneiform tablets. Cuneiform is the ty type of script uh, that's made out of these little, little kind of wedge shapes in different patterns because it was easy to kind of impress into clay using a sort of wooden stick, whatever. So that, that form of writing that they had called cuneiform. Uh, these cuneiform tablets from uh, the city of Nuzi and the tablets, we can just gain lots of information about various cultural practices at the time and discover that those cultural practices are very similar to those seen in the events of the biblical patriarchal period of about 2000 to 1500 BC. Um, and, and these practices have to do with things like the practices of marriage, of adopting an heir, of surrogate motherhood, about inheritance, and a lot of those things are very important to the, the patriarchal narratives uh, about inheritance and surrogate motherhood and, and who's married to, and, and so on. And we can just see that the, the world that the Bible is talking about at that time, the kind of cultural practices to do with these institutions, actually reflects the way that other people that we can discover in that culture around that time did think about things. Uh, Kenneth Kitchen, who's a Christian uh, Egyptologist, <coughs> notes that it's often asserted that the mention of camels and their use is uh, an anachronism, out, out of the right time period. It didn't happen until later in Genesis. And he says, this charge is simply not true. And new atheists often make this charge. Um, there is both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and use of this animal in the early 2nd millennium BC and even earlier. So, you know, sometimes new atheists and other people just make a criticism and say, the Bible's wrong because it says Abraham used camels and people didn't ever use camels. They were, you know, okay, they didn't enter widespread use until later. But they were used, <laughs> and we know that from written sources and from, from um, statuary and so on. Uh, time of Moses moving into about, uh, say, 1260 BCS and the Exodus uh, period. Now, uh, there's lots of other ways of getting at evidence for this period, and I put a few books up on screen here, like um, the recent collection of essays, Did I Not Bring Israel Out of Egypt?, which, for example, traces uh, words used in Hebrew religious contexts to uh, words linguistically tracing them back to Egyptian words and arguing that the best explanation of, of that is that Israel adopted those words in an Egyptian context and then used them in their context. So that makes a link between them, but that's on linguistic grounds, not archaeological 
uh, kind of grounds. Or um, James K. Hoffmeyer's book about Israel and Egypt and Israel in Sinai, ancient Israel and Sinai. Um, Colin uh, Humphrey's book about the miracles of Exodus. Very interesting stuff, but not mainly to do with archaeology. The Hoffmeyer stuff looks at some, some archaeology about the, why did the why did the children of Israel take the particular route that the Bible says they took and looks into the archaeology of that very interestingly. Uh, so the, the Exodus, and people disagree, Christians disagree about what historical period the Exodus is uh, happening in. Basically there are two schools, one which would put it in about 14, mid 14 something, 1446-ish BC, and one school that put it around about 1260 BC. Uh, that's an ongoing debate. But what can we get at here? We've got this thing called the, the Brooklyn Papyrus from the 18th century BC. Um, the Bible says that the Israelites became numerous and spread across Egypt. And while all the documents from the Nile Delta have, have they've rotted away because of the Nile floods that covered the area annually for thousands of years, just things don't survive, there is this slave list known as the Brooklyn Papyrus from the, the south of Egypt, and it has dozens of, of slave names on it, including biblical forms of names, uh, such as, uh, I'm going to mangle this, Shipshipra, the same name as the uh, Hebrew midwife in the Exodus account, or, or Asher, or Ishakar, or these kind of uh, Hebrew names. So we know that there were slaves in Egypt with Hebrew names uh, at that period. Uh, the famous tomb of Vizier Rechmeyer from 1450 BC uh, and the tomb paintings on the walls of his tomb shows a Semite and Nubian slaves and it shows them making bricks, employed in making bricks and of course uh, the Bible talks about the children of Israel, the, the thing that they were employed doing was making bricks for Pharaoh. Uh, so we know that there were Semite origin because of the way they depicted slaves who made bricks in, in around the 1450s BC. So let's jump ahead to uh, Joshua in the time of the, just coming into the time of the conquest of Israel. Uh, the Manepta Stelae, uh, these stelae, sort of uh, stone monuments, often with pictures and lots of writing on, that kings would put up as kind of um, propaganda adverts about how great they are. This is dated to 1220 BC-ish. The Manepta Stelae, is an, it's an extra biblical record of a people group called Israel, uh, set up by Pharaoh Manepta to commemorate military victories in Canaan, and it proclaims in typical ancient Near East hyperbole, exaggeration. Ashkelon is carried off and Giza is captured. Yenam is made into non-existence. Israel is wasted. His seed is not. Well, of course, we know Israel wasn't destroyed, um, but that is a typical ancient Near East way of saying we won a really convincing battle. I absolutely <laughs> slaughtered them. Not literally, but, but you know, way. Our, our Pharaoh absolutely conquered, you know, this, that and the other, and it mentions Israel as a, a people group. Uh, so Yunam, for example, is followed by an Egyptian hieroglyph that designates a town. So um, 
Uh, Yenam is made into non-existence. I've destroyed this town. But Israel is followed by a hieroglyph that means a people. So there's a people uh, that this Egyptian guy was fighting against in around 1220 BC um, called Israel. Uh, more recently, uh, perhaps uh, seems a mention of Israel in what's called the Berlin Statue Pedestal Relief. There's been a bit of controversy about this because if you look at the, the hieroglyphs here, you can see that they're, they're broken and scholars have had to kind of reconstruct the, what's most likely the missing bits using all sorts of complicated techniques. But this dates to the, again, a range of dates from the 14th to the 13th century BC. Uh, there's a debate around the pronunciation of the reconstructed word. There's one school of thought that argues for the presence of the sh sound, uh, invalidates it as a possibility of easing, reading Israel, Israel. Another argues that the, the blend of letters fits and there's no known location that the name could refer to other than Israel in this kind of list of places. Uh, it's like other lists that mention other places than that mention Israel. And if Israel is the correct reading, uh, the spelling of uh, Ashkelon in this list and the proximity of, of the names of Ashkelon and Canaan mentioned on this list and Israel, that's very reminiscent of the Menepta stele. Uh, but the rendering of the name Canaan is more similar to an old-fashioned spelling, but maybe just copied it off a old <laughs> st statuary or something. So there's a bit of debate about this, but this might well be another mention of, of Israel. And depending on when you date it, that could have a big influence on the debate about when the Exodus happened. Because uh, the 13th century dating of this might well fit with the Exodus happening in the 1250s. But if it's earlier than that, that might well fit with Exodus happening earlier than that, that whole debate. Now, this is a very recent uh, discovery, 2017. Uh, excavations at Kibbet al Mashtura, a 2.5 acre site in the Jordan Valley, six miles north of Jericho, revealed various stone enclosures, rectangular rooms, pottery dating to the late Bronze Age 2 or Iron Age 1. The site appears to have been used by a nomadic or semi nomadic group at the beginning of the Iron Age, around about 1200 ish, would be the beginning of the Iron Age era. Aerial University archaeologist David Ben Shlomo says, We've not proved that these camps are from the period of the early Israelites, but it is possible. If they are, this might fit the biblical story of the Israelites coming from east of the Jordan River, then crossing the Jordan and entering into the hill country of Israel later. Um, and that's, to, you know, so there's debates about the dating and uh, also the, uh, the type of architecture, these sort of oblong uh, rooms and so on. Uh, but that, this recent find, the archaeologists are saying, maybe this fits with this Israelite invasion conquest story from the Bible. Uh, horned altars, if you wonder this. So Exodus 29.12, for example, says... Take some of the blood of the bill and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And you think, 
what the heck are the horns of the altar? You know, I've seen altars in cathedrals, they're big flat things, right? <laughs> the horns of the altar. Also, Exodus 27, 2, 38, 2, Leviticus 4, 18, 8, 15, 9, 9, Psalm 118. They all, lots of mentions, the horns of the altar. Horns in Old Testament symbology of the, the period were symbols of strength or superhuman power. Uh, think of in the book of Revelation, you know, I saw a beast with, with many horns and so It's like you're saying it was powerful, right, uh, in symbolic language. Uh, persons accused of murder could hold on to the horns of an altar to claim sanctuary. This is mentioned in Exodus 21.14. 1 Kings 1.50. Adonai feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Like sanctuary. Amos 3.14, in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So in this prophecy, Amos was saying there would be no refuge for Israel against God's wrath. He's saying, I'm going to cut the horns of the altar off. There won't be any sanctuary for you, mate. You know? So it helps you un understand quite a lot of passages when you grasp the fact that we, when we dig up altars, the tiny little ones for the period, a nice big one over there, and, and go, what, what are those things at the corners dicking up? Oh, it's the horns of the altar. <laughs> so in the conquest and settlement period, Samson, you know the story of Samson, the strong from about 1100 BC. Uh, this is a large, enlarged picture. It's really a sort of little coin sized uh, clay impression. But you can see here, here's a, here's a man, here's his head and his arms and his, his legs. And here, and we know from the way it's depicted, with its head and its legs and its tail, is a lion. This 11th century BC stone seal, so making a seal Im impression, depicting a man fighting a lion, discovered at Beth Shemesh, the house of the sun, in 2012. The location, the dating, the image uh, match the Samson and the lion encounter in Judges 14. Beth Shemesh is about 19 miles west of Jerusalem, near the Iron Age border between the Israelites and the Philistines. Samson was, so say, born, lived part of his life, and was buried across the valley from Beth Shemesh. Have a look at Judges 13, 2 to 25, 16:31. Samson's killing a young lion in Judges 14, 5 to 6 happened on the way from his family home to Tema, a site identified as Tell or Mount uh, Batash, a few miles from Beth Shemesh. Now you can't look at that clay seal and go, oh look, it's a picture of Samson fighting a lion. <laughs> because it doesn't say on it, this is Samson fighting a lion. <laughs> what you can say is, isn't it interesting that this artifact showing a man fighting a lion should come from the time, the region from which we also have a biblical story about a man fighting a lion. 
Uh, maybe at least we know that there were lions around. <laughs> and uh, maybe there was some sort of story about someone fighting a lion or, or something. Now you could say, and that folk story was what they based the biblical story of Samson on when it was made up. Okay, so this doesn't prove that it happened, uh, but isn't it interesting? <laughs> Judges 16, Samson's death in the temple of the Philistine god Dagon in Gaza. They made him stand between the pillars and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Oh, I need to lean against the pillars. Oh, I've been, you know, tortured. Uh, now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of Philistines were there. Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. They gouged his eyes out. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left, left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. Well, the Gaza temple of Dagon hasn't been excavated, but it was probably quite similar to the Philistine temple at Tel Kessil, which was destroyed in the early 10th century BC, and which has been excavated. And here is, from that temple, Philistine temple, the, the bottom of the two pillars in the middle of the temple that held the roof up. And if you chained someone, and there's about a seven-foot gap in this case between these two pillars, and the pillars just resting on each other. It's interesting that that, you know, architectural detail from this story, and you can dig up a temple and show, well, actually, temples did have pillars in them that maybe you could change someone between and that were within reach and you know it kind of fits doesn't show that the story is true but it does show that whoever wrote it they managed to get this architectural detail about Philistine temples right and again on the minimalist school of understanding this was all made up in the Babylonian exile period hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after this it's like what are the chances um, that someone, you know, a Jew writing in Babylon would know about the architectural details of Philistine temples from 1100 BC. Um, maybe they know that because whoever wrote the story has at least access to some reliable information about what went on in 1100 BC, whenever they wrote. So we mentioned earlier King David, we're looking about 1000 BC now, the period of the United Kingdom of Israel, once they got rid of the judges and they said, we want to be like other nations and have a king, we want to, want to have a king. And God said, really? Like, I'm your king. Uh, it's a bad idea, folks. And they were like, no, no, we really want a king. Give us a king. And he was like, well, all right, you know, on your head be it. See what you learn from this one. So, uh, King David, uh, the Tel Dan Stile, that, that word again, here's a little video. Um, there's also an, an Egyptian sort of um, hieroglyphic Egyptian uh, list that uh, the Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen argues uh, contains the phrase the heights of David. Uh, 
um, in this Egyptian topographical list, uh, uh, lo locating it in the, the Negev uh, area, dates to about uh, 925 BC. That's about 45 years after David. Uh, talking about the heights of David uh, within living memory of the man, as, as uh, Kenneth Kitchen says. So, uh, it's half past. Let us break for coffee and pass round the after-dinner mints and, and finish up the other chocolates as well. And then we'll, we'll come back for more.